Welcome to the History Unplugged podcast, the unscripted show that celebrates unsung heroes, myth busts historical lies, and rediscovers the forgotten stories that changed our world. I'm your host, Scott Rank. Hi, everyone. Happy Thanksgiving. This episode is going out on Thanksgiving Day 2018. If you're in the United States, you're probably eating enough food for five people right now. If you're outside the United States, I'm almost positive you have familiarity with the American holiday of Thanksgiving through movies and everything else, and you've at least seen the stereotypical image of people crowding around the table to eat an enormous amount of turkey. Something I want to touch on in this episode isn't the origins of Thanksgiving, which are somewhat well understood, even though they can also be very well misunderstood, but I want to look at another aspect of Thanksgiving, and that has to do with the bird itself. A turkey has the same name as a country of turkey. Is that a coincidence? It's not a coincidence. There's a similar origin for the name of these two. But the common origin that these two have isn't just a small historical trivia fact, but it's actually a vast story about global trade and a new age of human connection that began 500 years ago. That's what this podcast episode is going to be about. The idea for this episode the commonality between the name of the bird and the country, came from Chris Grayton, who is one of the hosts of the Ottoman History Podcast. He also explored this issue on an episode several years ago. Chris looked more at this question from the perspective of the Colombian Exchange and the history of the Ottoman Empire. I'm going to look at this more from the vantage point of the bird itself. So this connection between Turkey the bird and Turkey the country tells us a huge story about the age of discovery that, among many other things, brought the pilgrims to Plymouth Rock in 1620. And it also tells us about how confused people in the old world were about people in the new world when they discovered the original inhabitants there. And one of the reasons that we call a turkey a turkey, the bird, is because even though indigenous Americans had little to do with the old world, This didn't prevent people in the old world associating people and things in the new world with the Middle East, India, and elsewhere. So first off, let's begin with terminology. So the word turkey, which came first, the bird or the country? Well, the country came first, and more specifically, the people who gave the country that name came first. When we talk about Turkey or the Turkish people, which comes from the medieval Latin Turkus or the Greek word Turkos or the Persian word Turk, that term can go all the way back to 177 BCE with the Chinese word Tukin, which described the people living south of the Altai Mountains. The Persian word Turk could also mean a beautiful youth or a barbarian or a robber. Chinese sources use the phrase tukui going back to the 6th century, and this transliteration could have originated for the word turkut in Turkish, which meant powerful, but later on gained other meanings such as youth, brave, or mature. Another hypothesis of this word is that goes back to the word turuk, which is a derivative of the word ture, which means something like law or tradition or cultural norm. Turuk could be used to denominate people who abide by customs and traditions. So this could be a catch-all word that described people that lived in a general region and over a very long time could have evolved into Turk. All right, so that's the ancient meaning. And then if we look from the vantage point of Europe, there's also a long tradition of calling the Turkish people Turks. 
The word Turkey, which is used to refer to land occupied by the Turks, goes back to the 1300s. It was used by Chaucer in the Book of the Duchess. And the word Turk, it seems to have entered Western sources from the East and was used in Italian, Persian to refer to people of this region. The land occupied by the Turks and many other people was known as the Ottoman Empire, which lasted from 1300 until 1922, but Westerners commonly referred to it as Turkey. And following World War I and the fall of the Ottomans, the Republic of Turkey formed, and they took the name that had long referred to the region. So Turks live in Turkey, and that makes sense, right? Now, in their own language, Turkey is called Turkiye, and many Turkish people realize that the name of their country is the same as the bird. And for decades, officials in Turkey have tried valiantly to internationally change the name of their country from Turkey to Turkiye, so it's not the same as the bird. For a long time, academics and officials, when they would send papers to international conferences, they would say that they were at a university, for example, in Istanbul, Turkiye, and not call their country Turkey, but Turkiye, and change the English usage. The plan didn't work. I worked at a newspaper, in fact, in Istanbul as an editor of the English language website, and the official style guide was to not call their own country Turkey, but Turkiye. And I told the editors, look, I get it. You don't like it, but you're not going to change anything. You're just going to confuse people. But hey, I was a lowly peon, didn't change the official style guide, and the quest continues. All right, so the place called Turkey came first. The Ottoman Empire was called Turkey well before anyone knew anything about the bird. Because the bird is from the New World, people called the Ottoman Empire Turkey before they ever knew of the bird. So what is the connection? Well, the bird we eat on Thanksgiving is an exclusively North American animal. It doesn't exist in the wild on any continent but North America, and it evolved here. So why is it named after a Eurasian country? According to Mario P., who was a Columbia University professor of Romance Languages, he spoke on this topic in an NPR interview in the 1980s, and he says it has to do with when a bird from the New World arrived in England. So he had two theories. First, in the 1500s, when the American bird first arrived in Great Britain, it was shipped in by merchants in the East, mostly from Constantinople. These merchants brought the bird over from America, but they were the ones who actually brought it to England. And since it arrived wholesale from the Ottoman Empire, or Turkey, as British merchants called it, the British referred to it as a turkey cock. That's partly because the British weren't particularly precise about products arriving from the East. Persian carpets from Iran were called turkey rugs. Indian flour was called turkey flour. And even Hungarian carpet bags were called turkey bags. Hungary at different times was part of the Ottoman Empire, so this is why. And at different times, the English called all Muslims Turks. And before that, they called them Saracens. And well into the 20th century, they called Muslims Mohammedans. So Muslims have always been mislabeled. Although, to be fair, in Arabic, sometimes Muslims are just called believers, iman or mumin, so the confusion goes around in all sorts of languages. Anyway, if a product came to London from the far side of the Danube, Londoners called it Turkish or Turkey. And that's what happened to the American bird. It was incorrectly associated with the East, and that's why it was called that. So one theory is that the American bird got the name turkey cock, which was then shortened to turkey. Another theory that Professor P. mentions is that long before Christopher Columbus came to America, 
Europeans already had a wild fowl they liked to eat that came from Guinea in Western Africa. It was a Guinea fowl that was imported to Europe, also by Turkish merchants, or at least merchants from the Ottoman Empire, and it was eaten in London. So it got the nickname Turkey Cock because it came from Constantinople. And when British settlers got off the Mayflower and saw their first American woodland fowl, even though it was larger than the African Guinea fowl, they called it by the name they already used for the African bird because wild forest birds like that were called turkeys at home. So a name attached to an African bird got reattached to an American one. So this bird, which originated in America, was ascribed to the Middle East, even though there was no connection there. And what makes this story even stranger is that people in different countries in their own languages each give it a different name, and they ascribe to this bird a different homeland, none of which have to do with America. And let me explain. In Arabia, they call the bird Dikindi, or the Indian rooster. In Russia, it's called the bird of India. In Poland, it's also called a bird from India. And in Turkey, they call it Ehindi, which again is something from India. And that's bewildering because Turkey, which has no native turkeys, they knew the bird wasn't theirs. So they made their own mistake and called it Ehindi for different reasons. Maybe the original merchants mistakenly thought it was from India. Or maybe it was due to Christopher Columbus calling the place that he landed India, or the West Indies, which the area of the Caribbean which he originally landed, is still called the West Indies. All this geographical confusion is getting attached to this bird. And the confusion extends to other languages. The French originally called the American bird Poulet d'Indy. Sorry for the bad French pronunciation. But the literal meaning of the name is chicken from India, which has since been abbreviated to Dindi. There's the specific Dutch word, Kalkoin, which is a contraction of Calicut hen, which literally means hen from Calicut or Calcutta, a major Indian commercial center at the time. This could have arisen from the mistaken belief at the time that the New World was the Indies, or the sense that the Turkey trade passed through India. This North American bird was never given its proper Americanness. Now, one explanation of why the turkey wasn't associated with America is because Europeans who first encountered these animals in North America rarely encountered them in their domesticated form or in their livestock form that they would see later. They encountered them in their wild form. Andrew Crosby describes in his book, The Columbian Exchange, Biological and Cultural Consequences of 1492, is that Renaissance Europe was shocked in the contrast between Old and New World fauna. To Europeans, the Indian as a farmer was impressive as any in the world, but he was unimpressive as a domesticator of animals. There simply weren't as many domesticated animals in the New World as the Old World, and Jared Diamond argues in his book Guns, Germs, and Steel, one of the main reasons why the New World was simply at a disadvantage in building up civilization compared to the Old World because its animals couldn't be as easily domesticated. There were only a few domesticated animals, like the llama and alpaca in South America, and a few different kinds of fowl, like the turkey, the muscovy duck, and possibly a type of chicken. So there were some domesticated turkey, but almost all of them existed in the wild. And in fact, most of his meat and leather came from wild game. There was no beast of burden to be compared to the horse, the donkey, or the ox. 
So the turkey was mostly wild when it was first encountered. It's not the plump, massive turkeys that you see in American agribusiness today. And since this is a Thanksgiving episode, we need to talk about the presence, or the lack thereof, of turkeys at the first Thanksgiving. Were they even there? That's part of the iconography of Thanksgiving. But when the pilgrims first stepped off the Mayflower in 1620, in December, finding a turkey wasn't on their list of things to do. Thanksgiving wouldn't be invented for another year. The first Thanksgiving probably would have contained waterfowl, ham, lobster, venison, clams, berries, fruit, squash, and pumpkin. If the turkey had any meaning to the early explorers who came to North America, they would have seen the bird as a sign of nobility because that's what the inhabitants of America ascribed to it. Centuries before Columbus reached the New World, Aztecs had domesticated a bird that we call the turkey, but they called the huexolotl. The turkey was so important to the Aztecs as a source of food that some Indians regarded it as a minor deity. There were two religious festivals a year in the turkey's honor. Now, turkeys back then are different from turkeys today. Wild turkeys could run at up to 30 miles per hour, but modern-day turkeys are bred for size, not speed. And a turkey has a reputation for stupidity because it moves around so slowly, and some can barely move around at all. But wild turkeys had a reputation for craftiness. North American Indian tribes regarded the turkey as a powerful spiritual symbol. They prized breast feathers as an alternative to goose down for warm winter wear. Southwestern tribes thought the turkey to be the guide that ushered the dead into the next world and buried their loved ones in turkey feather robes. Someone else who famously considered turkey to be a symbol of craftiness and intelligence was Benjamin Franklin. When Franklin was the United States ambassador to France, he received a newly minted seal of office. It had an eagle on it, but the eagle was said to look more like a turkey. However, Franklin approved this choice because he said, I am on this account not displeased that the figure is not known as a bald eagle, but looks more like a turkey. For in truth, the turkey is in comparison a much more respectable bird, and withal a true original native of America. He is, though a little vain and silly, it is true, but not the worst emblem for that, a bird of courage, and would not hesitate to attack a grenadier of the British guards who should presume to invade his farmyard with a red coat on. When the Spanish arrived in the early 16th century, they didn't even know what to call the bird, and they settled on a kind of peacock with great hanging chins. The bird gained a reputation among the Spanish as having fine textured flesh and distinguished plumage, and they also thought it looked funny. Courts in Madrid and Seville talked about it, and we don't know when the first turkey arrived in the Old World, but it could have been after Columbus's fourth transatlantic visit in 1502, when he visited Cape Honduras. King Ferdinand gave instructions in 1511 that every Spanish ship returned from the New World, bringing 10 turkeys. He said, half males and the other half females, because I desire that there be bred here some cocks and hens of those which you have there, and were brought from terra firma. The spread of the turkey around Europe quickly followed its introduction into Spain. William Strickland of East Yorkshire is said to be one of the first to introduce the turkey to England in the 1520s after a visit to the New World with John Cabot. He was apparently given a grant of arms, a family crest, that sported a turkey bird in its proper pride. According to Thomas Tusser's 1570 500 points of good husbandry, 
Turkey meat was now part of England's Christmas celebrations, at least for the well-off. Farmers from Norfolk would drive their turkey flocks to market in London on foot, about 80 miles distance, reportedly creating traffic jams on the street of the English capital. By 1541, eating turkey was so popular that when Thomas Cranmer, the Church of England's archbishop, introduced a law to restrict the consumption of meat dishes by his underlings, turkey was first on the list. He said, of the greater fishes or fowls, there should be but one in a dish, such as crane, swan, turkey cock, hadcock, pike, or tench. In Italy, the Venetian Senate passed similar laws, and turkey was outlawed, lawed with pigeon. Venetians appeared to continually evade the law and carve the birds in secret and made enormous pies with the meat. Well, the novelty of the turkey made them status symbols in Europe for the rich and famous. European nobility was fond of turning their estates into zoological extravaganzas and menageries where they would own all sorts of exotic animals. And they'd have exotic birds and beasts, especially when the Columbian Exchange is first kicking off in the early days of New World Discovery. And everyone wanted a turkey, of course. What more exotic bird could you come up with, especially if you hadn't seen one before? And if you got tired of it or your turkey was too aggressive, you could butcher it and have a delicious meal. By the 1570s, the English are enjoying the North American bird at Christmas dinner. Shakespeare talked about it in Henry IV. And if we jump forward a couple centuries, Charles Dickens is talking about turkey with gravy in A Christmas Carol. Once Lincoln declared Thanksgiving a national holiday in the United States in 1863, turkey had become a staple of Christmas dinner and quickly became a Thanksgiving treat as well. So the turkey, as we can see over time, has had quite a varied reputation from being thought as unintelligent to being thought of as courageous, from being a novelty to becoming so commonplace that you couldn't imagine not eating one on Thanksgiving Day. But it's also had a confusing history. Because it was a novelty, people didn't really understand its origins. I thought it was from India or the Orient when it was actually from the New World. The confusion of the origin of the turkey still exists, and it seems that every nation wants to claim that its origins come from some other nation that is exotic to that place. So in Arabic, the turkey is called the Ethiopian bird. The Portuguese call it the Peru bird, though there was never a turkey in Peru. In Greek, they call it the French girl, because the Greeks apparently got their first turkeys from the French. In Malaysia, a turkey is called a Dutch chicken, or ayam balanda. And the Dutch call it, like I said, the Calicut chicken after the Southwest Indian seaport. So to close out this episode, let's take things full circle and go back to the first Thanksgiving and see how turkeys fit into it. Like I said earlier in this episode, they would have had more lobster and berries and flora and fauna that were native to the New World. But when the pilgrims disembarked from the Mayflower in 1620, along with the livestock they brought with them from England, that included some domesticated turkeys they brought with them from England. When they stepped off the ship and they saw some of the wild fowl in the New World, they realized that their turkeys on board the Mayflower had come full circle. The native birds they saw in the New World were distant cousins of their own domestic turkeys they may have brought with them. Of all the famous stories of the Pilgrim Fathers, the most famous is that of their Thanksgiving dinner. Just about every American knows a story. But there's no evidence that turkey was on the menu with the first feast. Colonist Edward Winslow wrote, Our harvest being gotten in, our governor set four men on fowling, that so we might after a special manner rejoice together, 
after we had gathered the fruits of our labors. They four in one day killed as much fowl as with a little help beside, served the company almost a week, at which time, amongst other recreations, we exercised our arms, many of the Indians coming amongst us, and amongst the rest, their greatest king, Massasoit, with some ninety men, whom for three days we entertained and feasted, and they went out and killed five deer, which they brought to the plantation and bestowed on our governor and upon the captain and others. So there's no mention of turkeys, except in an account written years later by the governor, William Bradford, who doesn't make a specific connection between the turkey and the 1621 festivities. He wrote, They began now to gather in ye small harvest they had, and to fit up their houses and dwellings against winter, being all well recovered in health and strength, and had all things in good plenty, for as some were thus employed in affairs abroad, others were exercised in fishing, about cod and bass and other fish, of which they took good store, of which every family had their portion. There was no want, and now began to come in store of fowl as winter approached, of which this place did abound when they came first, and besides waterfowl there was a great store of wild turkeys, which they took many, along with venison, etc., so William Bradford says that he sent four men fowling to find food. Wow, say that five times fast. We don't know whether they returned with turkeys or not, but it sounds like in later years he said they did. Whether or not there was actually turkey eaten on the first Thanksgiving, we can see that no other bird was quite the globetrotter as the turkey is today. And just the name itself and its confused origins with the Middle Eastern country that it definitely was not from and other languages that claim that the turkey is from Ethiopia, or India, or France, or the Netherlands, when it isn't from there, shows you that the turkey is one of the most well-traveled and exotic birds, and we don't give it nearly enough credit. Hey everyone, I want to take a short break for a word from our sponsors. I want to mention a way how you can help support this show, and you can do so by saving big with a great new product from a company called Candid. Candid basically takes all of the misery out of adult orthodontia. There's millions of people at any given time in the United States who have wire braces, and there are many, many millions more who should be wearing retainers and aren't and need a tooth straightening solution. Well, Candid is a company that makes it possible to get tooth straightening without ever having to visit an orthodontist, without ever having to leave your home, and to get it all done much more cheaply and in a fraction of the time of conventional orthodontia. The way it works is that Candid sends a modeling kit to your home so you can take impressions of your teeth. After you send back your impressions with some photos of your teeth, a network of orthodontists reviews your case and provides you with a 3D preview of what your treatment will look like. After you receive your 3D preview, it's up to you if you want to go forward or not with a tooth aligner treatment plan. And when you get your treatment plan, it results in straighter and brighter teeth in an average of six months and can cost thousands of dollars less than braces. And again, no office visits are needed. Everything is delivered to your home. You can take advantage of Candid's risk-free modeling kit guarantee. And when you use my dedicated link, candidcode.com unplugged, you'll save 25% off your modeling kit. That's candidcode.com unplugged to get 25% off the price of your modeling kit. Candidcode.com unplugged. Well, that's all for this episode. Hope it was good food for thought as you're stuffing yourself with literal food. And I wish all the listeners, whether you're in the United States or not, a happy Thanksgiving. All right, well, that was the episode for today. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. First of all, I'd like to thank the Knowlton's Rangers 
and especially our spy masters, Baron Freza, Carl from Norway, Chris Romain, and Melissa Sarnowski. And I'll explain what that means in a second. If you want to support the show and help me keep producing this content, there are four easy ways for you to do it. One, subscribe to the show and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you want to do that, you can go to historyunpluggedpodcast.com and there you'll find instructions. Two, join our Facebook group, which you can find if you just search for History Unplugged. And please like and share posts that I put up about new episodes. Three, submit a question to me so that I can answer it on air. You can email me at info at historyonthenet.com or leave a voicemail. And again, go to historyunpluggedpodcast.com and you'll find instructions. Lastly, and I think this one is the best, is to become one of the Knowlton's Rangers. The Knowlton's Rangers were an elite reconnaissance and espionage detachment of the Continental Army in the Revolutionary War, but it's also the name of the History Unplugged membership program. Learn how to join by going to patreon.com unplugged. So here's what you get if you become one of the Knowlton's Rangers. If you join at the level of Scout, you can get early access to new podcast episodes, along with enjoying absolutely every single episode of the History Unplugged podcast ad-free all 270 and counting episodes. If you join at the level of intelligence officer, you can also get access to premium episodes, like a multi-part series on the life of Audie Murphy, the most decorated combat soldier in World War II, or the 10-part series Ottoman Lives, a series that looks at the cast of characters that made up the Ottoman Empire, such as the Sultan, the eunuch, the harem servant girl, and the soldier. And finally, if you join at the level of spymaster, you get all the same stuff as the scouts and intelligence officers, but you also get a shout-out to you and or your business at the end of each episode, a three-pack of hardcover history books, plus you will be put at the very front of the line for me to answer your question about history, and I can guarantee I will dedicate an episode that's about an hour long or so to your question. Sign up at patreon.com unplugged. Again, that's patreon.com unplugged. Anyway, those are the ways you can help out the show. Thank you so much for your support. Thanks for listening to the History Unplugged podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show to get your daily dose of all things history-related from ancient Greece to the Cold War. We'll see you next time at the History Unplugged podcast. This episode is brought to you by Wise, the account that helps you manage your money all around the world. I lived overseas for many years, and one of the biggest bottlenecks to international living is money transfers. You want to withdraw money from an ATM to access funds from your American bank account, and you don't realize you're getting hit with a $10 charge every single time you do that. Yeah, that did happen to me. So if you're dining in dollars or want to do business in bot, what a Wise account does is let you send, spend, and receive money in different currencies. Wise is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. This goes from a night out at a tapas bar in Spain to buying a property in the Yucatan. So if you're a digital nomad in Bali or want to send money back to mom, it's simple. And this is all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. Wise works in over 160 countries, so your money's always at your fingertips. And over half of the transfers get their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this app. Join 16 million customers and learn how a Wise account can work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com unplugged. That's wise.com unplugged. One more time, wise.com unplugged. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! 
Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.